welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and places mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Crazy Horse. However, before we get to our story, I'd like to respond to a few comments I've received about the podcast. The most common question I get is, why aren't there more? And even, are you still producing it? The best general response is that they're really labor-intensive and something I do outside of a completely unrelated full-time job. I spend a great deal of my free time on this, but it's not like baking a cake. It takes a lot of effort, and everyday life is a major distraction. However, I'm attempting to pick up the pace. Hopefully, that will happen in the future. Have I ever written or produced anything else? Yes, you can read about that at the Philip D. Gibbons link at my website, someveryfamouspeople.com. And in the future, I'll be releasing a novel I wrote that should be of interest. Details forthcoming. Lastly, for now, a review on iTunes maintained that they would have given me five stars, but that someone has gone back through the original episodes and added music. From the very first podcast, music has served as the intro and outro. There was more music in episode one, but that format did get cumbersome and was dropped. Nobody went back and added anything, especially music. Sorry, but just thought I would get that off of my chest. Anyway, to all of you out there listening and enjoying, thanks for your interest. And now let's get on with the story. On June 25th, 1876, Lieutenant Colonel George A. Custer was in command of one of three U.S. military columns in pursuit of a roaming detachment of over 8,000 Lakota and Cheyenne who were defying the federal government's order that they relocate to a designated reservation area. Custer pinpointed this detachment's encampment along the Little Bighorn River in the south-central Montana Territory and initially intended to attack at dawn on June 26th. But once he determined on the 25th that his presence was discovered, and he presumed the element of surprise would be lost, Custer divided his command into three units and ordered an immediate attack. Ignoring the 2,000 male warriors amid the massive campsite, Custer also intended to employ the strategy that succeeded in other federal attacks on native encampments overwhelming larger forces with quick strikes that killed non-combatants and intimidated entire villages into confusion, panic, and flight. This flamboyant commander was also intent on gaining credit for successfully commanding the force that subjugated the most prominent group of natives in the region and felt that delay would allow this encampment to scatter and escape. The Lakotas and Cheyenne were generally aware of the federal presence but believed that only a fool would attempt to attack such a large and powerful position. But at 3 p.m., attack Custer did, ordering 140 cavalry on horseback under the command of Major Marcus Reno to engage the south side of the giant native village on the western shoreline of the Little Bighorn River. Custer planned to take his command of 200 men and proceed along the river, ultimately leading an attack upon the northern side of the village. Some scattered members of the native contingent quickly brought word of approaching Federals less than a mile away. Unlike previous incidents, this time there was some warning of an attack, and as Reno approached, numerous warriors on foot and on horseback rapidly emerged to bring this assault to an immediate halt. The cavalry was quickly forced to dismount and set up a battle line that hastily became defensive. Several Lakota chiefs, including He-Dog and Braveheart, were soon involved in the fight, but as the conflict escalated, one notable combatant remained absent. The most respected and prominent Oglala warrior, Crazy Horse, was swimming in the river when the fighting started. Unlike his compatriots, who hastily grabbed any available weapons and horses, 
Crazy Horse remained focused and deliberate, heading for his lodge. He called for his mount, a magnificent golden buckskin pony with distinctive white spots. Upon entering his dwelling, he retrieved a pouch containing a potion comprised of aster, eagle brain, and heart, and removed a small amount, chewed it, and then rubbed it on his upper body. Around his neck, he placed a whistle fashioned from eagle bone, another pouch containing sacred animal objects, including a snake rattle, hawk claw, and a bear tooth, items previously prepared by an Oglala medicine man. As younger warriors gathered around the lodge, made impatient by the sounds of gunfire and chaos, preparations continued. Fifteen minutes after the federal attack, Crazy Horse emerged, clad only in moccasins and a breechcloth. Upon his face was a red jagged streak from his left forehead to his lower chin. The rest of his complexion was covered in yellow, with white spots indicating hail and lightning from out of a clear sky. Around his left shoulder hung a leather thong threaded through a spirit rock, a stone that was specially blessed and shaped. A smaller pebble spirit rock adorned Crazy Horse's left ear. On his head, a single upside-down eagle feather comprised his entire war bonnet. As the entourage stirred, he still was not finished. Slowly, he streaked red dirt on the top of his horse's withers and its sides, and then tossed a small amount of earth towards the animal's head and tail. This precise ritual was the result of visions Crazy Horse experienced as a young adult and consultation with the trusted spiritual leader who helped him interpret the meaning of these perceptions. All of these preparations would render the warrior and his horse invisible to his enemies and impervious to their weapons. Finally, he was ready. To his contingent he spoke, Here are some of the soldiers after us again. Do your best, and let us kill them all off today, that they may not trouble us any more. In the next two hours, Crazy Horse would earn both the credit and notoriety for inflicting one of the most humiliating defeats in U.S. military history. In 14 months, he would be dead, killed by a vengeful U.S. government and betrayed by some of his own people. Most biographical information about Crazy Horse is either unknown or obscured by myth and legend. Even the exact date and location of his birth has never been determined. Most likely he was born in the spring of 1840 in the Black Hills of western South Dakota near Rapid City. His father was a member of the Oglala clan, also named Crazy Horse, and his mother, Rattle Blanket Woman, was a mini kanju. As was the custom, the infant was maternally consigned for the first years of his life, the peripatetic ways of his hunter-warrior father requiring absences from home life. With atypically brownish hair, the child was called light hair and eventually curly hair, a distinctive physical trait that combined with unusually light skin. Although surrounded by a nurturing and spiritual circle including his mother, a sister, and two aunts, curly hair would also be exposed to the harsh realities of native life on the Great Plains. His uncle and father's brother was killed in a disastrous raid on the perpetual enemies of the Lakota, the Crow and Shoshone. This event coincided with problems between Crazy Horse and his wife, possibly exacerbated by mutual infidelity or even the addition of other wives to the family unit. While polygamy was not uncommon in Lakota society, either this issue or even depression ultimately drove Rattle Blanket Woman to commit suicide by hanging herself with a rope. Although the timing is unclear, Crazy Horse Sr. did marry two Minikanju women with ties to prominent members of other Lakota clans, including Spotted Tail, eventually one of the most prominent Lakota chiefs of the 19th century. As a child, through his many relatives, Curly Hair met and befriended other lifelong contemporaries, including He Dog, Lone Bear, and Touch the Clouds. He learned the ways of the hunter-provider, so as an adult he could assume a role in providing the sustenance that allowed for his family and his clan's survival. By age 11, Curly Hair successfully participated in the ritual of the buffalo hunt, even bringing down his first kill. In the late 1840s, the outside world was already encroaching on the region where the Lakota and other tribes had lived for centuries. Settlers, either destined for the West Coast or intent on settling in the area, depleted grazing lands 
and transported diseases that killed both buffalo and natives. The Oregon Trail ran literally through the homeland of the Oglala. As the 1850s began, and throughout Curly Hair's teenage years, an uneasy and sometimes downright hostile relationship between the native inhabitants, settlers, and agents of the U.S. government ebbed and flowed. The initial Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1851 specifically defined Lakota territory and allowed for the safe passage of settlers. Although thousands of natives convened to discuss the agreement, many were suspicious and refused to agree to its terms. Within months, the treaty was routinely violated by all concerned, and within years, actual violence would break out between tribes and the U.S. Army. On August 19, 1854, a group of 31 U.S. soldiers entered an Oglala and Brule campground in the vicinity of Fort Laramie to demand the arrest of a Lakota warrior who had stolen a settler's cow. Although the campground contained 4,000 inhabitants and 1,200 adult males, the Americans, commanded by recent West Point graduate Lieutenant John Gratton, believed their two howitzers and fighting ability would easily overcome the primitive tactics of the tribesmen. Gratton insisted upon the surrender of the native malefactor, and the event eventually escalated into a firefight that resulted in the complete massacre of all 31 American combatants. The commanding officer's remains were riddled with so many arrows that he could only be identified by his watch. This incident would mark the first of ongoing violent interactions between the Lakota and the U.S. government. Such an environment affected any native teenager, and Curley was no exception. Based on his desire to help his tribe, he asked his father for direction in seeking a vision to guide him. Possibly as a result of his domestic difficulties, by his 40s, Curley's father subsequently became more introverted and transformed himself into a Wikasa Wakan, a spiritual leader who was tribally respected for his ability to advise and even to predict the future. He was also known as a thunder dreamer, an individual who had visions of the Wakinyan, or thunder being of Lakota mythology, who communicated through thunder and expelled lightning from its eyes. His father agreed to this request, and the process of the vision quest began with the construction of a sweat lodge used for the initial purification aspects of this ritual. In conjunction with another holy man known to his father named Hornchips, Curly prayed and again explained that the object of his quest was to receive enlightenment and power to serve his tribe. This was an unusual request, with most other participants desiring more mundane goals revolving around wealth and or a long life. After the purification concluded, Curly and several other companions rode through the North Platte region near Scott's Bluffs of western Nebraska. Led to the summit shortly before dawn, Curley was situated in a makeshift shallow pit underneath a crude tent comprised of the shafts of five tree branches festooned with sections of a bright colored blanket. Pieces of Curley's skin cut from his body and wrapped and combined with tobacco were strung from these poles. Offerings to Wakan Tonka, the Lakota supreme being and all-encompassing spirit of the universe. The teenager was instructed to strip completely naked given a ceremonial pipe used during his purification ceremony and told to follow the sun from its easternmost point to sunset in the west. For four days, he was to eat or drink nothing and continually pray for the privilege of spiritual enlightenment. While it is historically agreed that Curley experienced thunder dreams, the specifics of his visions and his experiences were discussed only between him, Hornships, and others participating in this rite. At dawn on the fifth day, these men returned to the summit, clothed Curly in his own moccasins, breechcloth, as well as a buffalo robe, and led him to the base of Scott's Bluffs. There, in another sweat lodge, Curly's own pipe would be communally smoked, and the initial purification process was repeated three times. Throughout, the specifics of Curly's thunder dreams were expressed and analyzed, the other Wakasa Wakan ultimately concluding that the young man was a fitting recipient of a genuine vision, and the thunder beings would grant his desire to powerfully serve the Lakota. 
While Curley matured as an individual, hostilities continued in the region between the U.S. and the native tribes. Ordered by Washington to avenge the Grattan Massacre, as it came to be known, General William Harney led a detachment of 600 soldiers along the Platte River until encountering an encampment of 350, mostly Brule Lakota. Harney attacked and with overwhelming superiority inflicted 86 casualties that included many women and children. Harney then attempted to impose a humiliating treaty, placing boundaries on Lakota activity and demanding the surrender of individual chiefs and a cessation of attacks on settlements and emigrants. If his demands were not met, U.S. captives, also mostly women and children, would be turned over to the Lakota's mortal enemy, the Pawnee, and Harney would continue his armed defensive. Reluctantly, his demands were met. Curley's uncle, Spotted Tail, was among the warrior chiefs who surrendered and were ultimately briefly imprisoned at Fort Leavenworth. Harney began the federal process of attempting to restrict a nomadic people to a specific location by offering subsistence amounts of food and materials. While there would be a break in open warfare between the Lakota and the U.S. Army, most natives were torn between wanting to avoid violence and anger at having to acquiesce to continued incursion and aggression. Curley spent much of 1857 with his stepmother's relatives, the Brule. As a 16-year-old, he would participate in a raid upon a Pawnee encampment, racing far ahead of the war party, and instead of killing the first individual who crossed his path, he struck her with a wooden staff, counting coup the practice of skillfully touching an enemy and escaping unharmed. In this case, Curley had prestigiously counted first coup and continued through the village, counting numerous coup along the way, visually impressive to the older, more experienced participants in the attack. After the conclusion of this event, in late summer, Curley returned to his band of Oglalas, his reputation already beginning to spread. He would participate in an abortive Cheyenne lead attack on an eastern Kansas U.S. cavalry column that was ineffectual, but the most important event during this time period was a huge Lakota council at Bear Butte in the Black Hills in August of 1857 that consisted of all of the main factions of the Confederation, the Oglala, Unkpapa, Brule, Minikanju, Sans Arc, Blackfoot, and Two Kettle. Fundamentally, it was agreed by such leaders as the Unkpapa Sitting Bull that while various westward routes of the vicinity of the Black Hills would not be contested, the Black Hills itself, with the exception of two U.S. Army forts, was off limits to outsiders and was to be defended violently if necessary. The forts were tolerated as centers of trading that benefited the natives, but any other incursions needed to cease. This was Curley's first exposure to Sitting Bull, an interaction that immediately impressed him. At the Bear Butte, Curley was also reunited with High Backbone, a.k.a. Hump, a mini-kanju and relative through his father's marriage to High Backbone's sister, Rattling Blanket Woman. Although only a few years older than Curley, High Backbone was already a respected warrior leader. As a result of the council's decision to also expand northward, he proposed a foray into the territory of the Arapaho and a hostile war party was quickly organized. In the ensuing skirmish, High Backbone performed what is known as a dare ride, or brave run, riding far in front of his own comrades and circling in front of the battle line of his opponent, leaning behind the head of his horse for cover. Meant to demonstrate leadership, this maneuver also accomplished the goal of eliciting enemy gunfire, wasting ammunition. Unfortunately, in this instance, High Backbone's pony was shot out from under him, and he landed on the ground in a precarious position. Not only did Curley rescue him by hoisting him up dramatically on his own pony and leading him to safety, he then returned to lead an attack that drove his opponents up a rocky hill, again counting first coup on the corpse of an enemy combatant and killing two other individuals. High Backbone, Curley, and the rest of the war party then returned to their sizable encampment along the Belle Forche River, their victorious effort prompting a major celebration. It was on this occasion that Curley's father bestowed upon his son not only all of his spiritual powers, but his and his father's name as well, Tashunka Witko, a.k.a. Crazy Horse. 
High Backbone, and Crazy Horse would spend the next two years fighting another perennial enemy of the Lakota, the Crow Tribe. The more experienced warrior passed on a lot of his knowledge concerning tracking opponents, hunting wildlife, especially buffalo, the main sustenance of the Lakota, and interpreting natural surroundings to locate water and game. Crazy Horse continued to excel in individual combat, repeatedly engaging the Crow and helping to expand Western dominance well into the Powder River Basin, a region just west of the Black Hills. Access to this area provided ample hunting and an extended period of well-being for the Lakota. Crazy Horse further endeared himself by giving away much of the buffalo he killed to other less successful hunters and inhabitants of his encampment. Despite his generosity, Crazy Horse remained introverted and enigmatic, spending a great deal of time in solitude or conversing with his father, who had taken the name Worm, or Waglula, after bestowing his own name on his son. Crazy Horse would also continue to experience visions that had profound effects on his outlook and behavior. One in particular, in 1861, was both enlightening and disturbing. Wandering near Rosebud Creek and customarily by himself, and intent on inducing such an experience through enforced starvation, Crazy Horse found himself directed into the creek itself. He emerged and hallucinated a man on horseback, who told him that before battle he was not to tie the tail of his pony, unnaturally impeding it, and to wear a war bonnet, and to sprinkle himself and his pony with dirt. Most ominously, the man from the lake told him that he would not die from a bullet, but from being held and stabbed. Crazy Horse was disturbed by this and other visions, and he consulted with horn ships to provide him with spiritual guidance and protection. The solution was a smooth white rock, which was hollowed through the center and braided with a buckskin thong. Blessed with horn ship's spiritual power, the rock was transformed into a potent object to be worn under the left arm. Instead of a war bonnet, Crazy Horse was to wear a single eagle feather and to smear himself with a specially prepared powder of eagle heart and wild aster. While Hornships emphatically stated that if these precautions were taken, no bullet could touch him, he maintained that it would not provide protection from a knife if his arm was restrained. Crazy Horse was gratified by this guidance. He believed that no man would ever have the opportunity to physically overpower him. Therefore, he was completely invulnerable. By his early 20s, Crazy Horse had developed the personality and stature evident throughout his adult life. Five foot eight inches tall, lightly built with very light skin and waist-length hair that was also unusually light, eyes typically averted. He dressed simply and was usually quiet and introspective around camp. He was disinterested in traditional tribal politics and decision-making, shunning councils and logistics. His focus was the three roles that define the Lakota male, hunter, warrior, and scout. His contemporaries typically excelled in one of these abilities. Crazy Horse mastered all three. His reputation as a warrior only increased during the lengthy incursion into Crow territory. However, in 1863, the tenuous relationship between the Lakota and the federal government began to strain. A gold rush in the late 50s, brought tens of thousands of settlers into the Colorado Territory, pushing the Arapaho and Cheyenne out of their land and intensifying the debate between natives who accepted payment for treaty agreements and those who wanted nothing to do with such an arrangement. Another discovery of gold in Montana in 1862 brought the Bozeman Trail directly through Lakota Territory. In 1863, within a large native council among the interested parties, the prominent Oglala chief Red Cloud argued that the American government was an enemy and should be resisted whenever possible, an assertion that was agreed upon by all present. Raids were to be conducted in small groups, harassing settlers and small settlements and forts within the North Platte River Territory in present-day eastern Wyoming. These attacks were especially suited to Crazy Horse's abilities, and he led numerous raiding parties, scattering cattle, destroying wagon trains, until late 1864, for Crazy Horse and many other native inhabitants of the Great Plains, the conflict between them and the white invader revolved around territory and environmental destruction. 
an event on November 29, 1864, in western Colorado, would profoundly alter the generational conflict and collectively change the attitude of the tribes involved. On this date, 700 Colorado militia members under the command of U.S. Army Colonel John Shivington attacked a large Cheyenne and Arapaho encampment situated along Big Sandy Creek, a.k.a. Sand Creek, near Fort Lyon, Colorado Territory. The natives, led by Cheyenne Chief Black Kettle, were in the midst of peace negotiations with the governor of the territory and believed that camping near the American fort would indicate eventual compliance with government demands. Despite an American flag, and ultimately a white flag of surrender hoisted over Black Kettle's teepee, the militia attacked and rampaged through the village, killing numerous natives, mostly women and children, as many adult males were absent and hunting in the vicinity. Shivington ordered random howitzer blasts into the village, and the carnage continued all day, militia members pursuing fleeing individuals and killing them indiscriminately. The dead were scalped and mutilated, and almost all of the native chiefs present were killed, although a wounded black kettle miraculously escaped. Initially, praised as a hero, even in his own time, Shivington would be investigated by Congress and reviled as a bloodthirsty brute. Their tribes decimated and disorganized, many of the Cheyenne headed north into Lakota territory, bringing their maimed survivors and tales of this atrocity with them. This startling information, as well as his own observation of the treatment of natives who submitted to U.S. government demands and settled peacefully near military agencies, influenced Crazy Horse and many of his counterparts to resolve to violently resist such compromise. In the spring of 1865, he left the tribal village near Fort Laramie after visiting relatives and resolved never to set foot in such a settlement again. It was a vow he would maintain for 12 years. Tribal ambivalence over acquiescing to government requests to accept agricultural aid and turn to farming versus maintaining the traditional nomadic ways of the Lakota would split tribal bands into separate factions. Crazy Horse remained firmly defiant, continuing to participate in war parties throughout 1865 and 1866. Much of this hostility was focused on Fort Kearney along the Bozeman Trail, the headquarters for the sizable U.S. military presence that helped escort settlers attempting to traverse this dangerous territory. Commanded by Colonel Henry Carrington, the fort and its vicinity were subjected to numerous Lakota raids both during and after its construction. Carrington explicitly advised his subordinate officers to merely provide protection for wood-gathering operations and not to pursue natives intent on luring them into a trap consisting of an overwhelming force of warriors who could easily encircle and destroy a much smaller cavalry detachment. On December 21, 1866, Carrington sent Captain William Fetterman in command of a group of soldiers to provide protection for woodcutters who were working nearby. Fetterman, like many of his compatriots, was contemptuous of Carrington's cautious attitude and is alleged to have proclaimed upon arriving at Fort Kearney only seven weeks earlier, give me 80 men and I can ride through the whole Sioux Nation. Although revisionist history has challenged whether this comment was ever made, Fetterman's purported confidence was rampant among most of the junior officers at Fort Kearney and throughout the U.S. military. This attitude was also underlined by the tactics undertaken upon leaving the confines of the fort. On foot, because of the scarcity of horses remaining after numerous native raids, Fetterman was already handicapped by a lack of mobility, but still decided to follow a route which led away from the wood-cutting wagon train but allowed him the opportunity to confront any warriors present along a nearby trail. Despite being ordered not to, Fetterman began to pursue a specially selected group of decoys who led the soldiers into a pre-selected area perfect for an ambush. Among this group was Crazy Horse, who countered between galloping within rifle range of the detachment and fleeing in a coordinated effort with other warriors. Eventually, Fetterman also disobeyed orders to stray beyond visibility of the fort itself, enticed completely into a trap. Out of nowhere, 
hundreds of warriors suddenly descended upon Fenderman's column, and despite a spirited and ultimately desperate defense, the entire detail was quickly wiped out in a matter of minutes. Many of the native combatants were Cheyenne and Arapaho, seeking revenge for previous battlefield humiliations, and they subjected the defeated combatants' corpses to horrifying mutilation. Coincidentally, U.S. casualties totaled 81, Fetterman's entire command, native killed numbered 11, and 60 wounded. Although the senior-ranking war chief Red Cloud would be hailed as responsible for the battle's successful outcome, Crazy Horse was credited as one of the tactical leaders of this effort and achieved permanent status as a warrior and leader. The disaster of the Fetterman massacre actually prompted an official U.S. government inquiry into the cause of ongoing conflict between the various tribes involved in what was eventually known as Red Cloud's War. The unvarnished report of this commission determined correctly that the hostilities were the direct result of U.S. civilian and military encroachment and would only be permanently resolved through direct negotiation, as opposed to overwhelming military force and subjugation. Simultaneously, during the summer of 1867, the Lakota engaged in numerous raids that were typical of the conflict, but also in two pitched battles, the Hayfield and Wagon Box fights, both quite similar to the previous year's Fetterman massacre in location and circumstance, but with decidedly different outcomes. Soldiers on the frontier were issued the more efficient Springfield breech-loading rifle that could get off many more shots in a minute, negating the ability of a numerically superior but anachronistically armed fighting force to overwhelm through sheer force of numbers. Most native warriors were equipped with bow and arrow, knife, a war club, or war lance, and the occasional rifle was typically an antiquated musket with only a few rounds of ammunition. In the battles of 1867, native attackers were repulsed with, with significantly more casualties than the previous year, indicating to Crazy Horse that engaging in a pitched battle, even with a much smaller force, would be futile without the same type of sophisticated armament. By the early 70s, Crazy Horse himself acquired a Springfield and avoided a battle involving accepted similar tactics for six years. Eventually, the federal government came to the conclusion that a negotiated settlement was the proper solution to reducing the guerrilla warfare and hostility of the various tribes of the Northern Plains. Discussions with Red Cloud and various other tribal agents throughout 1868 resulted in the Treaty of Fort Laramie by year's end. For the first time, specific reservations and territories were guaranteed for natives only, with settlement by outsiders prohibited. These territories included the Black Hills. Forts along the Bozeman Trail were closed and abandoned, burnt to the ground by natives as soon as they were vacated. While Crazy Horse was present and a significant participant in tribal debates that culminated in the treaty, he typically expressed no specific opinion and was not an official signatory. Ultimately, Red Cloud succeeded in forcing the U.S. government to do something that was unique during the native conflicts of the 19th century, capitulation to certain tribal demands, but the treaty was problematic for two fundamental reasons. Many native leaders were completely opposed to ceding any lands to the U.S. government for any reason, and they did not want to be restricted to a specific reservation, relying on the white man for basic sustenance. Additionally, there was suspicion that eventually the U.S. government would further limit territory and ignore previous treaty agreements, a concern that turned out to be well-founded. Red Cloud eventually traveled to Washington, D.C. in 1870, where he was treated as a celebrity. After meeting President Grant and visiting New York City, he returned to the Great Plains, convinced that armed resistance to the U.S. government was futile and self-destructive. He and many members of his individual tribal band willingly relocated to allocated reservation land. Other Oglala Lakota not only disagreed, they aligned themselves with another less conciliatory faction led by the Ungpapa chief Sitting Bull. This group would identify as a non-treaty faction, opposed to any conciliation with the U.S. government. Crazy Horse was and would remain an adamant member of this contingent. 
having achieved the most prestigious honorary position within his tribe in 1868, that of shirt-wearer, his opposition made him one of the most high-profile members of tribal resistance to U.S. encroachment. Shirt-wearers literally wore intricately designed shirts fashioned from hides and decorated with beads and bright stitching. While bestowing this honor was a sign of status and respect, shirt-wearers were expected to uphold a certain code of conduct, and in 1870, an incident occurred which affected Crazy Horse's reputation and almost cost him his life. Although formerly unmarried and focused mostly on his role as a warrior, Crazy Horse interacted and socialized with many women. As a young man, he carried on a lengthy flirtation with an Oglala female known as Black Buffalo Woman, but ultimately she married another man known as No Water. This did not put an end to her interaction with Crazy Horse, and subsequently, after they crossed paths in the early summer of 1870, she agreed to elope with Crazy Horse and fled with a small band into the Powder River Territory. It is believed that No Water was abusive, possibly a habitual drunkard, but while it was possible for Lakota women to officially leave their husbands, merely running off with another man was societally frowned upon. No water pursued Crazy Horse's war party, intent on rightfully forcing his wife's return, and caught up with him at a large Minikanju and Oglala encampment along the river itself. Arriving around midnight, he entered the lodge where Crazy Horse was socializing with other Lakota chiefs, including Touch the Clouds and Little Big Man, pulled out a small derringer, and shot Crazy Horse point-blank in the face. The warrior chief pitched forward, head first into the flames of the lodge campfire, as no water quickly escaped from the teepee, onlookers either rushing to Crazy Horse's aid or too stunned to restrain the assailant. The bullet had entered Crazy Horse's head above the lip, broke his upper jaw, and exited downward through the rear part of the neck. Initially thought to be quite serious, it did not pierce any arteries or nerves, and merely left the warrior disfigured. No water was able to flee to the territory of his relatives, and when it was clear that his clan would fight to protect him, a resolution was negotiated, especially in light of the lack of any permanent injury. Crazy Horse consented to the return of Black Buffalo Woman as long as No Water agreed that he would not physically harm her, a promise guaranteed by No Water's family. No Water gave Crazy Horse several ponies to compensate for the injury incurred, and the incident was at least publicly concluded. Unfortunately, an additional consequence of this affair was the tribal judgment that Crazy Horse must officially surrender his status as a shirt wearer a process that involved turning over the shirt itself to a tribal council. Typically, Crazy Horse believed that this would restore his status as merely a simple man and not a politician or status seeker. Perhaps as a result of this incident, Crazy Horse did formally marry an Oglala by the name of Blackshawl. His new wife soon gave birth to a daughter, but the politics of the exterior world crept into this domestic solitude. Red Cloud returned from the east with a sentiment that the treaty signed in 1868 would not guarantee the tribal protections originally discussed. Officially, high-level politicians and the government informed Red Cloud and his entourage that exceptions involving railroads, rights of way, and military expeditions would have to be tolerated. Understanding that a future violent conflict might be inevitable, an Oglala Council of Elders decided to bestow the symbolic title of Tribal War Chief upon Crazy Horse. In the event of war, it would be his sole responsibility to devise strategy, battle tactics, and negotiations. Not constrained by the mores of the shirtwearer, it recognized his individual status as the most prominent protector of his tribe and its territory, the Oglala equivalent of the Unkpapa Sitting Bull. Intent on tracking the decreasing buffalo herds of the region, the roaming of Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull's bands would start to intertwine in the beginning of the 1870s. Buffalo were now only plentiful in the Yellowstone Valley in central Montana and Wyoming. As long as they were not compelled to live on reservations, and as long as they could forage successfully for game, they would avoid hostility with settlers and the government. It did not limit attacks and raids on other tribes, and the tumultuous year of 1870 concluded with the death of High Backbone after a disastrous attempt to steal ponies from a Shoshone encampment.
The birth of his daughter was probably an event that allowed some degree of reflection in Crazy Horse's frenetic existence, and a brief period of tranquility prevailed in 1871. But the outside world again quickly reared its head in the form of the powerful American railroad corporations that first unified the country in 1868. A second Northern Pacific route, meant to connect the Great Lakes region with the Pacific Northwest, would cut right through the Yellowstone and transform the entire region, further depleting what was left of existing buffalo, the lifeblood of the non-treaty natives. During this period, a steady stream, unhappy with life on the reservation at the newly designated Red Cloud Agency, would make their way back to the wilderness. For the next two years, the non-treaty Indians would harass any attempt to survey the land intended for railroad construction. Eventually, the U.S. government responded in the summer of 1873 with a deployment of numerous cavalry and infantry that included the 7th Cavalry Division. Numbering over 1,500 men, this contingent was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel George A. Custer, experienced in both the Civil War and Native conflicts on the southern Great Plains. At the Washita River in November of 1868, Custer achieved the first action deemed successful by the U.S. military, attacking a sizable village of southern Cheyenne and Arapaho in the western Oklahoma Territory. Almost 600 U.S. soldiers killed or captured most of the village's inhabitants. The Cheyenne leader Black Kettle and his wife gunned down as they attempted to flee the attack. But Custer also generated hostility within his command during this action by abandoning several soldiers who were killed during the conflict, an animosity that would have future consequences. Custer's assignment underlined the determination of General Sheridan and Sherman to permanently neutralize any native resistance on the northern Great Plains. On August 4, 1873, intent on confronting hostile factions in the Yellowstone Valley, Custer riding well in advance of his main detachment, was attacked by a small war party, which he easily repelled. Custer continued pursuit and was again attacked near the confluence of the Yellowstone and Little Bighorn. After a lengthy battle, the Lakota were driven from the battlefield and fled into the surrounding area. These two interactions may have contributed to Custer's recklessness in future combat, his belief that the native tribes were ineffectual in the face of even modest U.S. tactics and armament. The Panic of 1873 briefly dampened the appetite for corporate investment in the Northern Pacific, but a personal tragedy would befall Crazy Horse late in the year. His two-and-a-half-year-old daughter became ill with an undetermined illness, probably cholera, and rapidly succumbed. Her father sent into a spiral of grief that produced even more introversion and quiet stoicism. The winter of 1873-74 brought more hunger and sickness, as the annual buffalo hunts yielded smaller and smaller returns. Agency natives also were left to fight over meager rations that were always less than promised by agency managers. Although weakened and disorganized, Crazy Horse and other non-treaty natives were adamant that they would not move on to a reservation. Perhaps as a further attempt to intimidate them, in 1874, Phil Sheridan ordered Custer to march directly into the Black Hills with a force of over 1,000 well-equipped soldiers. Accompanying the expedition were mining engineers who quickly determined that the entire region was replete with sizable gold deposits. Custer, a shameless self-promoter, also traveled with several journalists who wasted no time in informing an economically challenged American population that gold was everywhere in the Black Hills. Sheridan and other hardliners within the U.S. government then decided to ignore previous treaty agreements and peaceable solutions to native territorial claims. News of gold in the Black Hills did set off an onslaught of civilian miners, but initially the government realized that such an incursion would set off a disastrously violent native response. Throughout 1875, non-military settlers were still prohibited from the Black Hills, although a military deadline to leave was ignored and enforcement non-existent. Instead, the U.S. attempted to negotiate a sale of the territory, offering amounts of money that were completely inadequate. Although agency chiefs like Red Cloud and Spotted Tail attempted to reach an agreement, the sparse provisions received in the agencies during the winter of 1875 forced many to leave in search of food. 
In Washington, it was also decided at the highest levels of the government that the Northern Plains situation should be resolved by force. The Southern Plains, Native Cheyenne, Arapaho, and other tribes had already been decimated or intimidated onto reservations. Only more military force would be required to impose the same outcome on the reluctant Lakota and their brethren. Winter was not even concluded before a column of 900 soldiers under General George Crook began to make its way north from the Colorado Territory. General Sheridan envisioned this as only one of the elements of the overwhelming power of the U.S. military that was to be unleashed in 1876. Negotiation over the Black Hills concluded with the ultimatum, relocate to the agencies or be forced to do so. In March, a contingent of Crook's men fired the first shots of what was eventually called the Great Sioux War of 1876-77 along the Powder River, ineffectually attempting to raid a Cheyenne and Lakota village, but also indicating that the U.S. military would now indiscriminately attack native encampments wherever they were encountered. An account of this attack and the subsequent burning and destruction of the village was transmitted directly by the Oglala chief He-Dog personally to Crazy Horse, who was situated in the vicinity. It was now clear that federal troops were deliberately intent on finding and destroying any native encampments they encountered, forcing the capitulation of non-treaty natives. Bitter cold was one of the factors that led to the failure of federal troops at Powder River. Activity ceased until June, when three reorganized columns resumed the invasion of the Yellowstone and Powder River vicinity. Crook's detachment was joined by two similarly powerful units, one commanded by General John Gibbon heading east from Fort Ellis near Bozeman, Montana, and another heading west from Fort Lincoln near Bismarck, North Dakota, commanded by General Alfred Terry. Within Terry's group, under the command of George Custer, was the entire 7th Cavalry Regiment. All three spearheads were intent on compressing the tribal elements of the Northern Plains into a specific area and combining the overwhelming power of over 3,000 combat soldiers to eradicate native regional unrest. Understanding that their typically scattered settlements were more vulnerable to attack, all of the disparate native tribes began to concentrate into one large settlement that also grew larger with additional arrivals from the agencies. These individuals had barely survived the winter on limited rations, disliked their treatment at the hands of the U.S. government, and wanted a return to traditional life, encouraged by warmer weather. By early June, a massive encampment was situated along the Rosebud Creek, its inhabitants preparing for the annual sun dance, a painful ritual in which prominent male participants cut off small pieces of their flesh, impaled their chests with skewers, and were lifted off of the ground and then lowered to begin a lengthy ceremonial dance, gazing intently at the sun through a crystal. The ceremony was an appeal to Wakantanka to provide power and prosperity throughout the rest of the year. In 1876, this ritual had especially meaningful overtones, the assembled natives understanding that a climactic battle with the invading U.S. troops was inevitable. The final participant in the sun dance was Sitting Bull, who collapsed unconscious after hours of self-mutilation and rhythmic movement. Revived, he proclaimed experiencing a vision in which many soldiers on horseback in a dust storm from the east fell from the sky into the native camp, like grasshoppers, their heads lowered and without their hats. This vision's meaning was unmistakable. A decisive victory was imminent. While the natives contemplated this precognition, the mud of the Great Plains kept Crook, Gibbon, and Terry from coordinating their advance. Gibbon and Terry were still over a hundred miles away in northern Montana, but Crook posed a more immediate threat, and by June 16th, it was clear that his column was bearing down on the rosebud and would have to be repelled. On the morning of June 17th, Crazy Horse ordered an orchestrated ambush of the federal camp, soldiers enjoying breakfast after a pre-dawn march. Initially fomenting chaos, the attack was ultimately repulsed by the quickly organized army troops fighting with hundreds of Crow and Shoshone. The Federals counterattacked and began a pitched battle that would stretch into the afternoon. At 2.30, after numerous hand-to-hand -hand struggles and savage fighting, the native contingent withdrew. 
Although relieved to have achieved a stalemate at what became known as the Battle of the Rosebud, Crook was stunned by the ferocity and effectiveness of his opponent. He withdrew back to his springtime base camp and would not be a factor for the rest of the summer. Unaware of this development, Gibbon and Terry were hampered by the less mobile infantry that was part of their detachments. They concluded that the quicker cavalry under General Custer would be better suited to locate and isolate the native alliance. The infantry would advance behind him, hopefully to eventually attack with overwhelming force. However, Custer was also given the latitude to attack on his own if he felt it advantageous to do so. The cavalry commander, already impatient with the expedition's lack of progress, ordered a forced three-day march that brought him to the vicinity of the native encampment. At sunrise on June 25th, Custer's Crow scouts observed indications of a large encampment only 15 miles away along the Little Bighorn River. Mitch Boyer, part Santee and French, and one of Custer's most experienced scouts, informed him that the native encampment was the largest he had ever encountered and suggested that attack was foolhardy. Custer ignored him and continued to contemplate exactly when and how he would assault the native village. Theorizing that if dust, smoke, and signs of a large encampment were visible to Boyer and others, then his own campfires and presence were most likely already known to the enemy. He abandoned a plan for a surprise attack at dawn on June 26th, and despite the exhaustion of his detachment after the rugged march, instead ordered an attack on the village during the daylight of June 25th. Thank you for listening to part one about Crazy Horse. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Crazy Horse, A Lakota Life by Kingsley Bray and The Killing of Crazy Horse by Thomas Powers. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Hey, uh, uh.